0: Uh, I really admire uh, George Beebe. I admire George Beebe because he's brilliant and uh, he knows more about foreign policy, specifically as it relates to Russia, than anybody. But unlike a lot of other people that are smarter than me, he is able to frame these ideas in a concept that laymen like me can understand. He's also willing to put out ideas and thoughts that might run Contrary to the prevailing wisdom at any point, but he does it with firmly planted in reason and understanding. If you're not familiar with George Beebe, you may not agree with him, but at the conclusion of this discussion, you will find yourself more informed about affairs with Russia. He is the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft And a man who spent more than two decades in government as an intelligence analyst, a diplomat, a policy advisor, uh, including as director of the CIA's Russia Analysis, director of the CIA's Open Source Center, and a staff advisor on Russia matters to Vice President Dick Cheney. He's also the author of a terrific book called The Russia Trap how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into catastrophe. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that uh, George has indicated in that book have indeed come to fruition. George, I appreciate you getting up early for us. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks, uh, Frank.
0: Everybody is talking about uh, what is going on in uh, Russia. It was initially described as a coup attempt, then a rebellion then possibly the onset of a civil war, and now it looks like things have calmed down a little bit. Can you give us sort of the thumbnail sketch, Reader's Digest version of what exactly has transpired over the last 72 hours? Well, um,
1: a private militia group, the the Wagner group, basically mutinied uh, against the, uh, the regular Russian army and against Putin and uh this uh uprising really uh had its roots in things that happened a long time ago but essentially um there was a debate uh between Wagner and the regular Russian military over um how aggressive the Russians ought to be in Ukraine uh and The Wagner Group and and a lot of others in Russia thought that Putin was being too timid, that he was not aggressive enough in attacking the Ukrainians, he was too worried about escalation into a direct conflict with the United States, and that Russia really needed to uh, send a lot more troops into Ukraine and to use the weapons that it has in its arsenal a lot more aggressively. And Wagner was also upset that they weren't getting what they thought was enough supplies to allow them to fight effectively on the battlefield. Um, And they became more and more critical of Putin uh, and of the Russian uh, Ministry of Defense and its leadership. Um, And the uh, response in Moscow was to say to the uh, the Wagner private contract mercenaries, uh, from now on, as of July 1st, you're going to have to sign contracts with the regular Russian military. You're no longer fighting for Prigozhin. You're no longer going to be a, a bunch of uh, private mercenaries. You're, you're going to be fighting for the regular Russian military under contract. And this threatened Prigozhin's control over Wagner. It threatened the money that he was making from this operation. And Prigozhin essentially rebelled and tried to force Putin's hand by turning his troops on Russia itself. Now, this was a big gamble. Uh, he, he didn't have anywhere near the forces to actually seize power in Moscow. And he had to, to uh, drive his forces about 700 kilometers uh, along a highway uh, to get to Moscow, which meant that they were vulnerable to attacks by the Russian Air Force. Uh, so, had they really pursued this, I think they were likely to be wiped out. Um, So this was a real problem for Putin, not just because it uh, potentially threatened his rule. It was a public challenge uh, to Russia. But also it meant that the Russian military might have to divert its forces from Ukraine, uh, potentially for a long time. And and they could have, as a result, lost the war in Ukraine. So Putin had to resolve this very, very quickly. Um, And in the end, what happened was... No Russian regular military units defected. Nobody joined the rebellion. Uh, No public uprisings in Russia really occurred. And Prigozhin was forced uh, to uh, concede. There was a a compromise deal that was uh, reached which ended up in Prigozhin, uh, the leader of this private militia, uh, being sent into exile in Belarus. And he achieved none of uh, his other objectives. Um, And all of the uh, Wagner fighters that didn't rebel are now uh, being forced to sign uh, contracts with the regular Russian military. So this is a big crisis, probably the biggest crisis that Putin has faced during his presidency. But he came out of it uh, without uh, a civil war.
0: Wow. So um, the the main character here, Prigozhin, that uh, people were saying was leading this attempted coup initially, the head of the Wagner group. What can you tell us about Prigozhin? He doesn't have what I would consider to be a standard mercenary pedigree, does he?
1: Well, no. You know, he uh, he was essentially a, a street thug. He was a criminal he served time in prison, uh, during the Soviet period. And, you know, like a lot of people in that kind of situation, uh, during the, uh, the post Soviet period, when, when Russia, uh, emerged, uh, into you know, market capitalism, he took advantage of uh, opportunities and, uh, parlayed his way into becoming quite wealthy. He, uh, started a catering business that proved quite successful. He uh, uh, grew up in St. Petersburg. He knew a lot of the folks in Putin's circle, and he used those strings to help uh, advance his own career. Um, and then uh, he uh, ultimately started uh, the uh, so-called Internet Research Agency, um, which became quite famous early in the uh, President Trump's term in office for uh, posting a lot of uh, internet content that people claimed was interfering in the uh, US election process and, and then formed the Wagner group. Um, it became quite wealthy and he was known as Putin's chef uh, informally uh, inside Russia. I think in retrospect the uh, the degree of you know, close personal relations between Prigozhin and Putin was a little bit exaggerated. Uh, but, but they were, they were, a, a they stop. were
0: allied, though, uh, Prigozhin and Putin. They were, they were allied. And it seems like their fundamental difference was Prigozhin wanted to be much more aggressive in going after Ukraine than Putin is.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Putin's strategy in Ukraine has been a slow war of attrition. He, he says, I think, that Russia is much bigger, got an enormous population base in comparison to Ukraine much uh, bigger military uh, manufacturing capabilities. And he is betting that uh, over time, Russia can simply wear down Ukraine's ability to field an army, Um, cause troop losses that that mean that uh, they don't have enough fighters to send to the front, Um, use up its uh, stockpiles of artillery shells and air defense missiles, And he's betting that uh, the United States can't manufacture enough, uh, quickly enough, uh, to supply the Ukrainians. And ultimately, um, the Ukrainians are going to have to either um, raise the white flag and and negotiate some sort of settlement, or their lines will collapse and the Russians are going to be able to, to, to counterattack that. That, I think, is Putin's strategy. It depends on patience depends on the russian people saying okay you know we're we're willing to let this play out over a long period of time and uh prigozhin and company didn't have that kind of patience and and uh you know the setbacks on the battlefield that the russians have faced have really challenged putin's strategy uh so It's a bit of a gamble on on Putin's part. And and there are a lot of nationalists in Russia that think that this is unwise, that Putin needs to deal a decisive blow to Ukraine now and get this war over with. What I think is funny about this uh, Prigozhin uprising is that the reaction in in the, the U.S., commentariat has been, hey, let's side with Prigozhin, Right.
0: Hope That's why I'm listening to what you're saying and making sure I'm clear on what you're saying, because, I mean, it seemed almost I was watching CNN on Saturday, uh, reading a lot of the other coverage in the New York Post, the so-called conservative papers, the so-called liberal papers, the New York Times, and they're all almost cheering him on. Uh, and it would seem to me that would be a much worse situation for the Ukrainians.
1: Well, you know, th- this would have been good for the Ukrainians if Russia descended into a real civil war. There's no way that Putin could have prosecuted essentially a two-front war where where Russia's at war with itself at home and trying to prosecute a war with Ukraine. Um, that's one of the reasons why Putin absolutely had to resolve this situation quickly, either through decisive force against Prigozhin uh, or striking a deal. Um, the, the, uh so the outcome of this, I think, of what is the, the worst-case scenario for Putin and Russia, and it really closed uh, a window of opportunity for the Ukrainians on the battlefield. Now, had Prigozhin won, then I think a bunch of people would have come to power who were ready to go after the Ukrainians with everything that the Russians have. Um, and, and Putin hasn't really done that yet. He He could have done a lot more to try to end this war quickly than than he has so um the the idea that uh you know prigozhin represented some sort of peace process for, for Ukraine was was uh, always ridiculous
0: the um how is the war going at this point we hear all these reports and it seems so difficult to uh, separate propaganda from the Russian side and from the Ukrainian side from what the actual facts on the ground are. From what you can tell, how is the Russia-Ukraine conflict going?
1: Well, um, right now, I think the uh, counteroffensive that the uh, Ukrainians have launched to to great fanfare is going very poorly. Uh, The Russians had a long time to build defensive fortifications in, in all of the areas that were likely targets of the Ukrainian attacks. And those defensive fortifications are quite formidable. Um, and the Russians uh, sent a lot more troops into Ukraine. They've got uh, somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 in reserve who are waiting to be deployed as necessary, depending on on where the Ukrainians might go in all of this. And the... Uh, The Ukrainians face a very formidable problem here. Um, Attacking entrenched, uh, fortified defenses is not an easy thing to do. They're doing it without air superiority. Uh, The the Russians have uh, a largely still intact air force that they can deploy uh, against these attacking uh, troops. Uh, So far, they seem to be doing that quite well. Um, And the uh, Ukrainians do not have uh, numerical advantages on the battlefield. Um, Generally, the rule of thumb for an offense is that you want to outnumber the defenses by three to one uh, margin. Mm. Uh, That's almost in reverse right now for the Ukrainians in attacking uh, the Russians. And so it's not surprising that they're uh, really not doing very well in this counteroffensive. They haven't even penetrated past the first echelon of uh, Russia's multi-tiered uh, defensive fortifications. Um, they've taken pretty heavy losses, and uh, Ukrainian officials are admitting that this is going slowly and that they are facing some, some very difficult uh, Russian resistance. Now, if the Ukrainians are admitting that uh, publicly, you know this must not be going very well. Um, now they are saying, look, you know, we haven't uh, committed the bulk of our forces yet. You know, the, the main thrust of the counteroffensive is still to come. The problem with that argument is that historically, uh, most defenses, if they haven't started to make progress, you know, early on uh, in in the attacks, generally never do well. And uh, I think the Ukrainians are really up against some stiff odds. They had a brief window of opportunity, I think, with this Borgosian uprising, which, you know, had it been successful, really would have crippled the Russian war effort in Ukraine. But the fact that Putin was able to resolve it so quickly, I think, means that uh, that window of opportunity for the Ukrainians is all but closed now. So I think they're facing a pretty difficult uh, set of odds on the battlefield.
0: The um, So many of the headlines today on this story all say the same thing, which is that even though Putin survived this, he's weakened, a weakened Putin, and that maybe this will send a message to someone else to try the same thing, and maybe even Prigozhin himself in the future. Is that how you see it? Is Putin weakened, and does this embolden any other would-be uh, rebels?
1: Well, I think a lot of Russians, particularly the elites in Moscow and St. Petersburg, have got to be asking themselves how Putin could have allowed the situation with Prigozhin to spin so far out of control. Um, You know, he settled this quickly, and, and I think a lot of Russians have breathed a sigh of relief that the immediate crisis is over. But one of the things that Russians look for in a leader is somebody that can maintain order. Uh, They don't want things spinning out of control, and they started to uh, a couple of days ago in Russia, and and that has to have shaken a lot of people. Now, I don't think there's an immediate threat to Putin's rule, but I do think that over the longer term, this has been a blow to his image inside Russia. Um, And and Russians are looking at a presidential election in uh, 2024. Putin is going to have to decide is he going to run again Um, and this incident may well be a factor in causing some russian elites to think that that maybe it it could be time for somebody else to take over now they're not going to do that in the middle of an an uncertain uh war in ukraine uh things are going to have to change on the battlefield but um i do think that uh, over the longer term uh, this has done some damage to Putin. Now, is there going to be another uprising like this anytime soon? I doubt it. You know, one of the things that was clear from this was that nobody joined the rebellion. You know, Prigozhin more or less rolled the dice, hoping that people would join his cause. They didn't. Um, and a lot of people that might aspire to this sort of thing in Russia have got to have looked at that situation and say, OK, well, time is not right for that sort of thing yet. So I don't I don't think there's an immediate threat of some sort of coup. Uh, but over the longer term, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Putin, Putin took a blow from this politically.
0: All right, George, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the time very much and, uh, appreciate the insight. My pleasure, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, George Beebe. He, uh, is with the Quincy Institute, but you should also check out his book. It, kind of ends before this Russia Ukraine situation but it was very much predicted. It's called The Russia Trap, how our Russia how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. It is a book everybody in Washington and Moscow should read. We'll do 15 seconds of fame. If you have a comment on any subject, make it 15 seconds or less. 800-848-9222 straight ahead. The other side of midnight.